Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. I am the co-host Peter Englert. I am here with a friend from Browncroft, Elena DeHaan. She is responding to the question, why will mental health continue to matter in the future? And so I think the purpose behind this is Elena caught me at church a few months ago and she was just wondering what we do for mental health at Browncroft. We shared a bunch of Why God Why podcasts and I just thought having a conversation with someone from Rochester, someone that grew up at Browncroft about this topic would be great because I think we're all trying to wrestle with what does a healthy outlook on mental health what does it look like, especially in this new generation and new times? So, Elena, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Folks, this is Elena's first podcast interview. It is. I'm a little nervous. You got this. You got this. <laughs> well, let's start with a softball. Uh, tell us your story and how you ended up as a mental health counselor. Yeah. So, I was trying to think back, okay, when did my journey with mental health begin? And my mom would easily say kindergarten. She'd be like, I was the kid who was always in the principal's office because I was, you know, getting in trouble here and there, but I was kind of this anomaly because I was a, a straight A student and that carried me all through college, all through my graduate program, but I was always getting in trouble. And so my mom, I want to say it was around middle school, she started to say, okay, like what's going on? You're, you know, you're skipping classes, you're doing this, you're getting in trouble with this person, you're talking, right? And, and what's happening? So my teachers met with her and they said, let's get Elena evaluated for ADHD. And immediately my mom was like, no way, there's no way she had this. Well, it turns out after interviewing my parents, after interviewing my teachers, my coaches, ADHD, that became my label. And so as soon as that became my label, I started to think of myself differently. And when I was thinking of myself differently, I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if everyone else is starting to think of me differently too. So it kind of switched my perspective on myself, which was confusing, especially especially at a young age and in high school, right? You're still trying to figure yourself out. And all of a sudden you have this label where your teachers are putting you in boxes. Your parents, not intentionally, but have put you in this box and they offered me medication. I was like, okay, sure, I'll take it. Yeah, advisement of my parents, doctors, why not? And I hated it. I hated it immediately off the bat. Didn't feel like myself, was losing pieces of myself. You know, I just, I felt like I wasn't fun anymore. Like what's happened to me? So I stopped. I stopped taking medication. I became determined in 11th grade to figure out what are alternative methods to like, you know, not getting in trouble, but still having fun, still enjoying myself. What does this look like? So I got really involved in sports, started talking to my doctor. Okay, what do I need to be doing? Exercise was great, but also getting involved in some other things. So I remember specifically one time, I was actually here at Browncroft. My mom didn't want to leave me at home alone because I get in trouble, right? I leave, I go see my friends, whatever it was. And I came out sitting in the back of the sanctuary, arms crossed. I was mad to be there. And this missionary came up on stage and said, hey, we're going to do a trip to Romania. And I was like, okay, if my mom is bringing here thinking me like, I'm going to go to Romania, she's out of her mind. But sure enough, I felt, at this time I had been, I had been a believer since eighth grade. Got saved, you know, been a believer, got to this meeting, and I felt the Lord being like, no, you got to go. You got to go to Romania. And I told my mom, my mom's like, okay, cool, we're going to Romania. Sure enough, we started meeting, doing the meetings at Browncroft. So my first introduction to mental health outside myself was in Romania when I went and we we had you know a week with these orphans different groups of people we did some homeless population work and immediately my heart was like this is what I'm meant to do like I'm meant to work with kids that are like me who have either been kicked out of school who are struggling at the orphanage and I came home signed up for Houghton as a English as a second language major 
I got there and I was like, this is not for me. Like, what is happening? I was confused, really confused about what God was doing in my life. And then I went to Romania again. And my passion, because that's the word you use, when your passions start, it was when I was a freshman in college and I had gone on this second trip to Romania and we went to this town one hour north of Arad where we were staying. Mm -hmm. It was this psychiatric institution called Moncria. And I think there was 170 patients at the time and it was unlike anything I had ever seen. You know, it was... Have you seen, if you've seen the movie Shutter Island, right, the gate, the big gates open and there's people kind of wandering around in, in these uniforms. I was like, this is just a world so far outside anything I've ever seen. And I remember sitting down with the person, the missionary there, who said, yeah, some people are really called to do this work their entire lives. And I was like, I think this is what I'm called to do. I think this is me. I remember calling my mom sending an email home and my mom being like, I don't know, Lena, don't switch your major. You've been there for a week. I came home, switched my major at intercultural studies, psychology. And two years later, I found myself in a social work program. And I kept going back to Romania. I kept going back to that psychiatric institution where I just grew to love the people. I didn't speak the same language as these people, but just being in the presence of those people, I felt Lord, the Lord being like, this is for you. And so that's kind of how my personal passion began. I, I want to back up a little bit. So mental health has changed. Just our perceptions have changed. Not completely, because I think that's why we're having this conversation. But take us back to the Elena, you know, when you were in elementary school all the way up to high school. You got, you know, diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. What would have been different if that happened to you today, positive and negative? Oh, positive. I would think that it's more well known, right? I mean, I haven't been out of, I want to say, middle school, maybe it was like 15, 20 years ago that I was there, but the resources are greater. You know, there were inclusive classrooms, of course, but there wasn't anything specific to my knowledge for kids who had ADHD. You just got this label. And your teacher's like, okay, this person's different, but that that was about it, right? Talk to your doctor, get on some medications, but there weren't necessarily resources of how are we gonna specifically help this, this child? And now, I mean, I see kids that are my age, where we're you know, in the 13, 14, 15 navigating this, and there's resources, there's groups that they can attend, right? There's online forums where they can talk to other kids that are like them. There's tons of different outlets and resources. And while social media can be, you know, that's a whole nother topic, but there's a lot of positive that comes from social media seeing I'm not the only person like me. And so I felt like I was the only person like me. And I was I was in this weird space because teachers didn't really care because I was passing, right? I did great. Like I did excellent school. I tested well. I was in all AP classes, but I was the jokester. I was constantly talking, distracting other kids, which is disruptive, of course, to the other kids who are trying to learn. And so positive Oh man, I don't know. I think there's just more resources, more outlets for kids, more opportunities to not be the only one in this situation. Well, and I feel like a theme for this conversation, and we might just dive into the controversial, is like I kind of have, I'm married to a mental health counselor. We've talked about that in the podcast, (laughs) good old Robin. Um, But I think the kind of the struggle is, is when you overcompensate 
Mm -hmm. Like, so for example, I'll hear someone that's not diagnosed with ADHD. Oh, that's just an ADHD moment. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true, but you know, I think that there's some listeners that listen to this or even some critics maybe online that are like, have we gotten too much in the diagnosis game? Are we overcompensating? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, you've lived it. So I think you you have some credibility, not just educationally, but right. experimentally. Yeah, I think I needed it. At that age, I, and I don't think that's the same for everyone because I think some people really attach to a label and it becomes a definition for them. But I needed that to figure out, okay, what do I need to do differently in order to be successful in my life? And so for for other people, they, and I, I do this a lot in my practice, right? People come in and I'm like, why are you here? And of course, they start off with what they're struggling with, what they've been diagnosed with. And I say, okay, let's table that for a second because that's just a piece of you, right? Mm. There's so much more to you as a human, so much more to you as a person than this label. You know, the labels were created to help doctors, physicians, therapists to figure out, okay, what's the best evidence-based practice to work with this person? But it's become almost this, this like name tag that people want to wear around. And there's so much more to people beyond that. You can have anxiety. I mean, 9,000 other things, right? Same thing with anyone who's on the SPM, serious and persistent mentally ill spectrum, right? You can have bipolar, but you can also be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and and so where the labels used to be really limiting, I think when I was younger, I needed it personally for my own you know, mental health journey, my professional journey. Now, I, I think people are still defining themselves in such small boxes. But the, mm. the research is there and, and the opportunity to meet with other people like you is there to say, okay, this isn't all that I am. Mm. Okay, well, so walk us through this last year. So you work at Agape Counseling, right. but you also have a job at Strong. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of conversations about mental health. We'll kind of dive in a little bit more kind of the current conversation, but what was this year like for a mental health therapist? This year in general, it's so hard to narrow it down to exactly what it was like. It was challenging and it was rewarding, right? There's positive and negative to every situation. Positives that I've seen come out not only at Agape, but also at the hospital is that resources are expanding, right? The, the breadth and the depth and the reach of some of these resources because they've transitioned to telehealth, right? They've transitioned to things like podcasts, things like, you know, social media outlets. The more tangible, good resources are available to people at home. Whereas you used to have to go to an office, you used to have to see a doctor, you used to do all these things. But but now the breadth is, it, it's so much wider. Challenges, of course, when when the pandemic first hit, I was working in a rural county mental health clinic. And so immediately, you know, we were furloughed for seven weeks because the county didn't know how to handle this, right? They said, this is going to be short. We're just going to send you home for seven weeks. Blessing, great. I got to be home with my kid. But we came back to a big challenge of these people have been without services for seven weeks. And the biggest challenge we face, especially in rural, right, different from Rochester, but rural county was that people didn't have access to the internet Mm. they didn't have quality access and so the immediate reaction of everyone was like oh just push everyone to zoom push everyone to telehealth but that wasn't a simple fix for where we were we were doing a lot of sessions on the phone but you'd have someone who said well i've only paid for 30 minutes to have on my phone this week 
And so how, you know, navigating that, it was a, it was a challenge. So help us understand, like what you're saying at Strong was you had people that consistently need mental health therapy, mm-hmm. you know, between Strong and Agape, how did like new clients, I mean, how fast did that? Cause you're kind of dealing with two different things. Like mm-hmm. you're in the midst of a pandemic, someone doesn't have internet, they've only got 30 minutes on the phone, but then all of a sudden, you know, it, it can seem and feel like everybody woke up during the pandemic mm-hmm. and said, I need mental health. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just walk us through that. Yeah, so two very different positions. At Strong, I'm a clinical evaluator in the psychiatric emergency department, right? So you have emergency services. So these are the people who are acutely suicidal, acutely homicidal, have had a serious incident typically take place or have been referred by a provider, a family member, those types of things. So the, the immediate access has to be there. But what we were seeing was and still are is even before the pandemic, wait times were extensive, right? The rule is, kind of across the board that from when the minute a person comes up our elevator, you have to be seen within 24 hours by mm-hmm. a physician to determine, are you going to be admitted or are you going to be discharged, right? Feasible when the numbers are low. But when you have school counselors calling and saying, I have three kids who need to be evaluated or you have mom and, you know, this mom calling about her husband and, and the numbers became so wide, so big, but then you also have staff who are adjusting to life, trying to figure out, I have to be home with my kid. We couldn't have nursing staff come in, physicians. We're like, I need to you know, rotate off with my significant other. So the biggest challenge was wait times. And then if you have people who are like, yeah, we're gonna, be, we're gonna admit you. We think you need to be here inpatient. There weren't any beds. And mm. so we had and still have some people who wait in the psychiatric emergency department for days before they can be, and, and we had to contract with other hospitals, we're gonna transfer you, where we, you know, where can we put this person? But I'd say one of the biggest negative effects is that you've taken someone from the familiarity of their home now, and you're not in an individual room in the emergency department, you're in a waiting room. Mm. And you are seeing people come in and out who are in the darkest spaces of their lives. And then you had staff who were also confused with policy changes, right? Everything was different. Yes, you have to do this. No, you can't do that. This person has to be COVID tested. And I mean, when we have someone who's acutely psychotic, yeah, we have to COVID test you. Well, how's that gonna work, right? What, you know, this person's already paranoid about the staff that are in there. And so that was, that is and was probably one of the biggest challenges I've seen personally at the hospital. It's just the numbers. So this comes up a little bit because so, you just mentioned it and you mentioned it in your story. Um, when we think about um, medication, um, so there's there's some people, Christians, say don't get medicated, and then there's other people that just run to it. You know, what's your kind of view for our listeners? Because it, you know, hearing you, you wanted to get off medication, and it sounded mm-hmm. like you wanted to get off because you didn't like the effects of it. Mm-hmm. But you just kind of shared about medication. I mean, how do you how do you live out that tension? Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough tension to live out. But I think the the easiest way I put it is I actually compare it a lot to my to my dad, right? So my he would be fine with me sharing this. I'm sure he has a pacemaker. Okay, so he has a pacemaker because he has an issue with his heart, and so his doctor has this medical device that's placed inside of him for a physical issue, and he also has to take medication. He couldn't do one or the other. He has to do a combination of both, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I tell people is there's 
environmental factors that play into your mental health. And then there are sometimes chemical imbalances that play into your mental health. And so you can target one or the other, but the magic in sometimes pairing the two and the greater success in sometimes pairing the two, if your life can be better, why not consider it, right? And I tell people, every person who comes into my office, I'm not a medication pusher. We can do as much as we can in here. But I encourage everyone to meet with their physician, meet with their psychiatrist and say, hey, what are what are my options? There are some symptoms absolutely that can be targeted through therapy, through exercise, through changing certain habits, right? Decreasing certain habits. But there are some people in the same way that you know your blood pressure will be better if you take a pill, your anxiety will be better if you take a pill. And that's, it, it's really personal choice, right? I could have tried multiple different medications when I was younger, and maybe one of them would have worked for me. But my personal choice was, I'm not a danger to myself. I'm not a danger to others. How can I just live a more quality life by changing some of my habits or finding outlets that work better for me? Mm-hmm. It's so person-dependent, really. And I tell people to kind of reduce the noise. Meaning, who would you go to for advice, right? Would you go to your doctor? Would you go to your spouse? Would you go to your best friend, right? I don't want you on the internet Googling, should I be on medication, should I not? I don't want you talking to your neighbor about should I be on medication, should I not? I want you to evaluate, you know, the people who speak truth into your life. Sure. The people who care most about you. But it's hard, it's hard in the Christian realm. It is. Well, what's hard about it? Kind of, there's this, so there's this concept that's kind of, it, it, it started back in 1984 and I remember learning about it in school, I went to Roberts Wesleyan and it's kind of making its way back called spiritual bypassing. Are you familiar with this at all? No, tell our listeners okay. and tell me. So spiritual bypassing was, I can't think of the name of the psychologist who coined it, but it was basically saying how harmful it can be to people when you say, oh, just give it to God. If you mm. prayed harder, right? Or if you were in church more, you just need more community, right? And so in 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 the same way that you wouldn't sit down if, you know, your your friend or someone you love has been diagnosed with cancer, you say, Oh, just just give it to the Lord, right? Or if you just lay at the feet of the cross, you won't need chemo tomorrow. Why then are we in this space? And I see a lot in the Christian world of being like, I have people come into me and say, I feel like I've been praying so hard and God hasn't taken this away from me. It's the same question when people are physically ill, right? I feel like I've been praying so hard and my loved one's still dying of cancer. And so this this concept of spiritual bypassing is saying, well, if you just give it to God, it'll all go away. That's not how God works, right? Mm-hmm. We don't see that in physical ailments. Why do we draw this parallel to a mental ailment when your brain is sick? Same way your heart gets sick, same way your liver gets sick. But this, it's just this kind of like this veiling of, well, if you just do this, it'll be better. Well, uh, you know, Jennifer Ferrari, who we've had on three times, she talks about that. We, we just had an episode come out. Okay. What's the stigma of uh, mental health in the church? And it's funny because I can imagine someone walking in and saying, I'm very depressed and, you know, I've prayed about it and I prayed all night. And you're like, well, if you prayed all night, when did you sleep? Well, I slept for two hours. Like, yep. you know, there's your solution, you know. So mm-hmm. what, where I want to go now, we kind of had a pre-conversation about this. So, uh, you know, we're recording this at the end of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I actually just noticed Emmanuel Acho is making a video on why do we need to talk about mental health Mm -hmm. and you know again this is a theme but so simone biles the whole situation when you heard about that 
Walk us through your perspective as someone that lives in the mental health world. Yeah. So Amelia was like, you go, girl. I was I was happy because she took a stance for something she believed in. We were up in the Adirondacks. And I remember, you know, Eric being like, oh, someone by else isn't competing. I'm like, what? Like, I was so upset because I love, I just love watching her. But then the stance she took, right, immediately my heart is like, yeah, this is awesome. Good for her. She took a stance. She stood up there and said, I mean, if you look at what's happened in her life in the past five years, the trauma that she's been through, the things that she's had to endure, I can only imagine how intensified those are on a national stage, right? Or being in a situation that might be triggering. I don't know her history. I don't know you know, the gamut of her mental illness, but to be able to take a stance and say, this isn't good for me, no matter what it is, I think it's a huge power move. I think it's great. But I also remember sitting down and being like, oh my gosh, the backlash that she's going to get from this. I was like, I remember praying, like, I hope she doesn't look at her social media. Just the things that people were saying, you're weak, right? Why would you even make a comeback if you weren't gonna you know, see it all the way through? And so I remember being sad. And I tell people a lot in, this, in my practice too, like you can experience two extreme emotions at once. I was like pumped that someone was taking a stance for mental health, then also sad thinking about some of my clients who had taken a stance for the mental health and the, you know, or set boundaries for themselves in the past. And it didn't go well, right? They got backlash from family, friends, whoever it was. She was getting backlash on a national stage. So there's a lot of facts in there. So like she talked about experiencing the twisties. If my daughter was on the uneven bars and she was like forgetting where she was, uh, that's not a situation I want I want to be in as mm-hmm. a parent. There was a lot of like unfair um, unfair feedback. How do you address someone that that feels the concern cuz to some individuals that I've talked to it mm-hmm. feels like we're celebrating this when it's like we wouldn't celebrate an injury. We would feel for someone. Mm-hmm. But there's kind of this weird tension of totally want to support you totally want you to get the help that you need Mm -hmm. but the celebration was just you know i I think there was an uneasiness with some people of we want you to be a healthy person we care about you you're you're the goat Mm -hmm. but the the celebrating of it uh, i don't know how do you respond to that it's tough i think to figure out what is appropriate and what isn't now when you're saying celebrating are you talking on the behalf of like the american people of the team of simone like who cel- who celebrating i i feel like the people that i've talked with like you celebrated someone sitting out mm-hmm. the, and there's very valid reason because i think there's thoughtful people that feel like this is very valid mm-hmm. but there's some unintended consequences like mm-hmm. i think there's I mean, again, I don't want to speak for people and stuff, but I think this is something, this is why this question is important to wrestle with, Mm -hmm. is somebody could be experiencing high levels of anxiety. Someone could be experiencing the twisties. Mm -hmm. Like, they literally changed the scoring on it. Like, you want to talk about moving the goalposts. Like, that's just a fact. Like, Mm -hmm. she she couldn't even do a normal routine. Mm -hmm. Like, all of that is true, but there was like, you know, if someone injured their ankle, you know, we would feel bad for them. Mm-hmm. But I think the the struggle is, and maybe maybe what you would say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, maybe what you'd say is, we've come so far in mental health to get, but I'll let you, because I think that's kind of the struggle. Is there an unintended consequence 
to to really celebrating this for people to kind of say hey i'm not in because of mental health and i feel like that's a real conversation that we're not maybe having i don't Mm -hmm. know yeah I, i think when i think about consequences right I think what is what is the bad mm-hmm. that's come out of this, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah, there's there's been some backlash, but when you weigh out the two, what type of conversation would we be having if she pushed herself through this and then came out and said, you know, ex said whatever. Maybe she started struggling with suicidal ideation. Maybe she ended up inpatient, right? And then she pushed herself too far. Mm. And then what are we talking about, right? So are the consequences greater by not stepping away, not breaking that stigma and pushing yourself beyond your limit? We talk about boundaries all the time in mental health, right? Setting boundaries. People who don't understand are the people who push the boundary, who say, I don't get it. Why are you doing that? Mm. And I think the people who are cheering her on, the ones who aren't kind of pushing those unintended consequences, get it. Say, you did something for yourself, right? There was there was another guy that was on the Olympics. I'm mean, going to forget his name now. He had, was three weeks out of an Achilles tendon surgery. And I remember watching him and he didn't do well or didn't do as well as he normally did. And I was thinking, gosh, this guy's putting his body through a lot. And after he cried and he was upset and he was like, maybe I shouldn't have done that, right? So there's consequences with pushing yourself too hard too. I think there's consequences no matter the choice that you make, especially on a national stage. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, it's hard to determine. Mm -hmm. What if the response was, because again, I think the hard part for some people is the celebrating. Mm -hmm we're proud of you for making that decision, you know, and we hope we hope that you're well, mm-hmm. you know, like, is that different or, cause I, I think with, you know, as we process this, what is, why will mental health continue to matter in the future? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what we're wrestling with, you know, is how do we talk about this in a way that doesn't throw, well, as Americans, we are go-getters, we are gonna power through. Mm-hmm. And I'll use a different example for football, concussions. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a point now, and I don't hear anybody saying this for concussions, there's a point now where it's like, you just got hit in the head really, really hard. Guess mm-hmm. what? <laughs> You're gonna get evaluated. You, you know, and I don't know why it's different with mental health. I guess that's why I'm trying to process with you. Mm-hmm. Is why it's different for mental health. I think just the, it's the stigma that's related to it. Mm-hmm. It is that, you know, that, that mindset of being a go-getter. I think what it comes down to, actually, is you just have to respect people's choices, mm-hmm. right? Individual choice. If someone is going to con- choose to continue to get their head beaten every Sunday on the football field, and that's their choice, there's going to be consequences, of course, right? And there are going to be people who cheer that person on from the American mindset of, yep, you kept going even when you shouldn't have. And then there's going to be people, moms, sitting back and being like, that boy's stupid. <laughs> right? And so and so it depends on where you cut the pie, if you will. Some people are going to say this is awesome. Some people are going to say this is terrible. The same thing happens in mental health, right? You're going to find a, a series of people who say, yeah, Simone Biles, we're celebrating you. And then there's going to be another gamut of people who say, we're not celebrating this, right? You should have pushed through. You put yourself on this stage to do a job. This is your job. You quit. So I think it just depends on who you're looking at, who you're polling. Well, but what about the people in the middle that we support the decision. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's kind of what we're wrestling with m- mental health. Cause you know, 
I'm wondering, you know, the parent that's thinking like, my kid says that he's anxious and doesn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I both be sensitive to that and help help him make that decision mm-hmm. and do it in the right way versus you're saying that you're anxious is is it really anxiety or do you not want to because i think what i hear you saying is i hear you mm-hmm. saying let's take it for face value let's pro- and with simone biles with even there's a ton of medical staff that kind of would say that mm-hmm. but i think that that's kind of what I, you know, you you brought up the two chasms. Mm-hmm. There's some people in the middle that are just wondering about that, right? So, um, and that and that continuum is long, though, right? We're making assumptions. We're talking about two very different things here, right? You have either a mom and a son, or a parent and a child relationship, or someone who's on a national stage, right, where we're mm. making tons of assumptions about what's happening in their life, right? The conversation Simone's maybe going to have with her mom or dad is gonna look a lot different than the conversation you and I are having mm. about this person that we don't know. We don't know the ins and outs of their lives. Whereas if you're someone who falls in the middle with your kid, what I tell people is you are the expert in yourself. I tell that to the kids. I tell that to the parents, right? You, of course, know your children really well, but they also know themselves really well. And of course, developmentally, you know, finding a space where your kids are able to articulate their needs, able to articulate their emotions, right? That that takes work. But that middle ground of, you're right, when do I push someone outside of their comfort zone? And when do I say, okay, I understand that this is anxiety, we're gonna step back from this, right? It's almost from a therapeutic perspective, like as a parent child, that's not your call, right? The kid, there's consequences either way, right? If the kid chooses to push themselves beyond their level of comfort, there's gonna be consequences of that. If the kid decides that I'm anxious and I'm gonna use this as an excuse to not do something, there's consequences to that too. And that's part of the learning process, part of learning about yourself and figuring out what is right and what is wrong. And so, you know, my parents could have easily said, nope, we're gonna make you take your medication. You know, you're gonna keep doing these things. But they sat me down and said, what do you want? Well, it sounds like you're you're asking for curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just asking, you know, because even in a, in a conversation, you might not be able to, uh, and I don't think anybody's ever 100% on anything. Right. You know, so with the anxiety, let's say my daughter tells me that she's anxious. Mm-hmm. 80% of it could be legitimate. 20% of it might not be. It might be, I really don't want to do that. Right. But I'm going to focus on the 80%. I want to play the percentages game. Mm-hmm. And even, um, you know, even as we're talking about this, I, I think this is the conversation that people want to have mm-hmm. but don't feel comfortable because yeah. there is this span of, of course we feel mental health is a, is a big issue. Of course we don't want anybody getting hurt, you know, emotionally, physically, or even spiritually. Mm-hmm. You know, but how do we how do we engage this in such a way, you know, with love and grace? And I I think that that's, I think that's where people are kind of landing. And I'd even add truth in there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, people, people take advantage of systems all the time, 
right? Even people who have physical ailments, right? They will say like, I can't do this because my back hurts or I'm not going to engage in this because of whatever, right? There, of course, the continuum again is long, right? There are people who will use mental health as an excusatory behavior to get out of things, whether it's a defense mechanism, a trauma response, whether it's that's how they've always learned things. Maybe they had a parent who had anxiety and their anxiety stopped them from doing a lot of things. Then they repeat the cycle of my anxiety is an excuse for everything, right? I'm not going to do this because I'm anxious. I'm not going to engage in this because I'm anxious. Oh, I can't enjoy this activity because I'm depressed, right? But then there's the other end of the spectrum where people say like, yeah, I, ha I have this, but it's not going to stop me from doing certain things. It's so, it's so person dependent that it's difficult to kind of narrow it, right? We want to, we want to address that middle ground, but that middle ground is so wide. Well, and you know, you had the same response as my wife, which I get in, in some ways, because you know, my wife said to me, she goes, if you knew about all the pressure in sports mm -hmm. and, you know, it comes out, I think it was in uh, Georgia that one of the quarterbacks was like, thank God for the um, sports psychologist, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I think that that's kind of what we're wrestling with this question. We don't, you're saying we don't have answers, but we're trying to at least address and identify some common ground and even some language to talk about it. So coming in, how does faith, you know, you've talked about the stigma of the church, but how does faith really inform what you do? Who inform? That's a good question. I mean, when I think back to my early days of working in secular practice, the hardest part for me was there are laws and rules against not being able to talk about your faith right? I couldn't come out and say like, oh, I'm a Christian. Let me pray with you. And so I had this internal struggle, this internal battle of once these people left my office, like what am I to them? What am I doing? And there's just so much power, I think, and what I've seen in prayer is that even though this person has leave my, left my office, doesn't mean the work has stopped. doesn't mean that there's nothing else that I can do. In terms of faith informing my practice, I have a unique opportunity right now at Agape where faith is part of my practice practice, right? And I say, same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm big on the continuums. I have people come in and I ask them, like, how important is your faith to you? Do you want me to incorporate it in everything we talk about in here? And I actually have a lot of people who say, I'm a firm believer. I love the Lord, but what I've been doing hasn't been working. Mm. So give me the other side. Give me the science. Give me the evidence-based research. Give me, you know, not the let's talk about what Jesus says about this, right? Let's let's look at what has worked for other people. And faith looks different for everyone, right? And I think the biggest takeaway for me is that the work is never done. And mm -hmm. the, that song, um, I forget who sings it now, but like Battle Belongs, right? Mm -hmm. This is, it's part of my journey, a part of my story, of course, to incorporate and use my faith and be a light for Christ. But I can't fight it all mm -hmm. on my own. And I think that's a burden that a lot of my non-believing friends or my non-believing coworkers, my non-believing counterparts have is like, how do you not exhaust yourself at the end of the day, right? A lot of my non-believing peers in general are like, how do you do this all the time? My God, the Lord, first of all, right? Mm -hmm. Because 
at the end of the day, I can be, I can be good at my job. I can be terrible at my job, but it's it's still not my battle. Mm-hmm. So I think it it's comforting. If you if you painted, you know, a vision and a picture of what society would look like for mental health to continue to grow and matter, mm-hmm. what are the positives? Ooh, if I had to paint a picture of what it would look like moving forward. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think it would be treated the same as physical health, right? It would be mirrored to the money, the research, the compassion that we put into physical health or even into sports, right? Like I'd be fine with those two. Like if we were as invested in mental health as we were in sports, I'd be like, this is great. Like that would be part of my vision that everyone and everyone would have access to, right? That I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but access to quality mental health services, right? Because everyone has mental health. That's everyone has physical health. Everyone has mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Some people just struggle with how to take care of their brain well, right? So in schools, I would say like let's talk more about mental health and less about like home ec. I don't know, less of I think PE serves a purpose, yes, and sports are great. My husband's going to watch this and be like, "I want to stop hitting on sports." <laughs> but kind of drawing that parallel between physical health, emotional health, financial health, economic health right those things are all out there well let's come back to Simone Biles like a year from now would it be would us being in a healthy place she's saying I just can't do it because of mental health would be the same way of saying she twisted her angle she's not like is that kind of the way that you see it yeah is that you know if someone steps down or someone steps down because yeah you you broke your leg Mm -hmm. right or you got the stomach bug. You mm-hmm. step down, you can't do it. Okay, move on. No one wants to see someone throw up on the balance. Exactly, <laughs> right? And you you also, you don't want to see someone have a panic attack on, yeah. the, on, the, beams e- on the beam either, right? Mm. And so why can't we draw that parallel between, you don't want to see someone fall and break their leg, but I also don't want to see someone fall and have a panic attack either. Mm-hmm. But that's, so it'd be that. Yeah, that's exactly what it would be. Mm. So what are some signs that you should really, I mean, we assume, I mean, we've talked about mental health a lot. We have a Spotify playlist, Mm -hmm. but for someone that's personally dealing with mental health issues or they're not even aware, what are some signs that, hey, you really should be thinking about this? Mm -hmm. Cool. And you'd be like, you're breathing. (laughs) No, but one of the questions I ask my my intakes usually is, or even people I see for clinical evaluation at the hospital is, how is this disrupting your activities of daily living? Mm. Right? So what is, what are you seeing? How are you seeing disruption, right? How do you know it's a good day versus a bad day? Right? And so sometimes good days outweigh the bad days, but if someone's coming to you and saying, I'm having a lot more bad days than I'm having good days, or things like, I can't get out of bed. I can't maintain my relationships. Mm. I can't maintain my workload, right? I can't take care of my children. I can't take care of myself, right? And so asking them, where is the disruption? Where is it Where is it showing up, right? Anxious thoughts, everyone has them, right? But when do they become disruptive? 
is what it, what do disruptions look like disruptions in sleep right disruptions in are you sitting in a meeting and thinking about everything that's not being presented in the meeting right if i was maybe someone who's struggling with anxiety right now is my mind elsewhere or is it able to focus on the task at hand and so disruptions look again the continuum is long and, the, and it's different for everyone. What, what might be disruptive for one person might not be disruptive for someone else. But anxiety shows up in tons of different ways, right? So recently I've had someone who keeps telling me, oh, well, I keep forgetting my appointments. Yeah, well, forgetfulness is part of anxiety, right? If you're forgetting to do certain mm. things, forgetting to attend, forgetting to attend to certain things, perhaps seeking out some help. But I have people who come in to me one, two sessions, right? They just have one specific thing that they want to work. And I say, yeah, my door is open. Let's talk about this one thing. Give me a couple tools. Give me a couple strategies. I mean, so often people come in and they're like, I need you to fix this for me. I'm like, well, that's that's not going to happen here. But yeah. You know, so we brought up some controversial issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, your fear is I was going to bring something up. But... <laughs> Where would we be mental health wise if if we could disagree better or have better conversation? Because, you know, right now we have a polarized political climate. You know, we we have the discussions on race Mm -hmm. and it'd just be interesting to get a like from a mental health perspective. How would these things be different in your point of view? If we could agree to disagree? Well, maybe, maybe not. But like if if we were attending to some of our mental health. Can you reframe that? So I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm fishing for. Okay. Is there's no non-anxious presence in the room. Okay. You know, so all of a sudden, like, you know, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. I don't know if social media was here, but there's a perception. I have a perception mm-hmm. that like... Democrats and Republicans could sit and have a cup of coffee. Mm. Um, And like when you see a social media fight, I feel like you could put like a mental health issue there. Like Mm -hmm. someone feels really anxious and they need to be right. Like they need to know where the line is. Mm -hmm. You could also put, you know, that with mental health, like the fact that we like avoid people like we don't know how to do conflict and really and i guess you know maybe you'd say maybe we'd all agree i don't think you'd say that Mm -hmm. but you know i wonder as as we play out with this conversation in the future how would having a better understanding of mental health help us live in a pluralistic society like we do right i mean conflict resolution and communication are learned skills (laughs) And not everyone has those, whether it's in the lens in which people see the world and the capacity that people have differs, right? Ideally, we would all have the same capacity. We would all see the world through the same lens while having these conversations, right, to be able to kind of converse in a healthy and appropriate way. But that's just not realistic. And I don't know that it ever will be, right? Mm. Because of whether whether someone was raised a certain way, whether someone experienced a certain thing. But that, that combativeness that we see between whether the pro-mental health and anti-mental, I don't even know. If, I mean, I hope, gosh, that there really aren't people that are like anti-mental health because <laughs> everyone has it. But, you know, it's sometimes it's a defense mechanism. 
right? People want to defend what they know and their capacity or the lens in which they view the world limits them from seeing beyond themselves. And so there's there's a podcast that I um, that I listen to. He calls himself the angry therapist and refers to his office as the lab. Mm-hmm. And I love this because he said therapy and conversation is experimental. You never know how the other person's going to respond, and you never know how your body is going to respond to certain things. So where something might work really well for one person, it will not work at all or be detrimental to the next person. But being able to be in that space, knowing that this conversation, how this is going to go i mean even here right like oh i'm trying to figure out like what are you going to ask next like what are we going to talk about next but that same thing can apply in a conversation with two people with very differing opinions it's kind of taking that step back removing that defense mechanism removing whether it's that trauma response removing that lens in which you see the world but that is hard And it's learned and being able to take away some of that bias or take away some of this, no, I'm right because I've been through this, right? Yeah, you might be right and you might have been through the same thing as me. You and I could have experienced the exact same thing and we're going to view it differently. Mm -hmm. Our outlooks are going to be different because of, I don't know. You're a girl dad. I'm a boy mom. I don't know. There's tons of different things that impact someone's way in which they see the world. Ideally, we'd be able to sit down and have healthy conversation. But Well, I think that that's part of the reason why I'm passionate about this Mm -hmm. podcast because, you know, if you're listening or watching, this is a safe place Mm -hmm. for us to have conversations. And I don't know what it is about podcasts that people can sit there I can listen to someone that I fully disagree with and I don't feel the need to like tweet or Facebook message or, you know, do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, listening to this podcast is this act of curiosity, this act Mm -hmm. of empathy, because even with all the situations we've talked about, what's missing is it doesn't seem like we see from the other. And Mm -hmm. you're not even saying agree, disagree. You're saying even with someone that you agree with, do you see why they're so passionate about it? Do you see that? So, yeah. I think you said the word safety, and this always stands out to me because I could come in here and like I could be leading this podcast, right, and tell you like, I'm a safe person. You can say anything to me, like this is a safe (laughs) space. But if you don't feel safe, then regardless of what I do, what I say, how I present myself or how I act, your perspective might not change. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's me that's making you feel unsafe. Maybe it's something that you've been through, but in order for someone, for a a space to be truly safe, both parties have to feel safe, Mm. right? So I love going into conversations like, yeah, this is a safe space, say anything to me, right? But if you have someone who's been in a situation where someone said, yeah, this is a safe place, and then all of a sudden it becomes no longer a safe place, then they have this preconceived notion that, yeah, even though you told me it's safe in here, even though you told me it's okay to talk about whatever in here, they don't feel safe, whether it's a provider that didn't listen to them, a family member that didn't listen to them, someone who that they love and trust, a spouse who has always said, yeah, no matter what you bring to me, I'm, I'm here for it, right? And then all of a sudden they're not there for it. And so mm-hmm. I come in here and you're like, yeah, Lena, this is a safe place. Say anything you want. I'm like, whoa, no, I've been to a podcast before and they have said whatever <laughs> and they have thrown me off guard. In order for it to be a safe space, both people have to feel safe. And I think that's what's hard about mental health. 
Well, let's close with these two questions. This has been great. Um, and again, I, these conversations are why we have this podcast, yeah. you know, because can I ask this question in church? Mm -hmm. um, so during Mental Health Awareness Month, you did a post on Facebook, mm -hmm. just how to help someone dealing with mental health issues. And again, this has kind of been a theme where, you know, instead of giving the pat answers or how do you really support a friend, a spouse, a parent, a child who might be dealing with mental health stuff? Just, you know, lean into that for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I will always stand firm. I'm, you know, if there's ever a client listening to this, I'm like, Alina's a broken record. But that person is the expert in themselves. And you are not. And, and so I tell people where when you sit down with someone, listen listen to what they need right and sometimes people can't articulate what they need they don't know what they need but that's not where you you know jump in and, and try and solve the problem right there are people you know if someone comes to me and said Elaine, i'm having a heart issue i'm not going to say why don't you try this i'm going to say why don't you call your cardiologist right why don't you call your primary care physician and so the encouragement of providing the safe space like you and I talked about. Well, what does a safe space look like? Safe space looks different for everyone. Sometimes it's in a church. Sometimes it's in that person's home, kind of figuring out what is a safe place for that person, identifying that, and then really listening into what they need. And sometimes it takes trial and error, right? Sometimes people who are struggling with mental health need you to drop off a meal. Sometimes they really do need to be alone. Sometimes they need a phone call instead of a text. But you are not the expert in that person and trying to make that decision for them typically doesn't end up well let them make that decision for themselves you can encourage of course but if someone tells you i just need you to listen i don't need advice then just listen don't give advice or if they say i need advice say well my advice would be maybe to go see someone talk to someone who knows this whose profession is this right because Sometimes you can be more hurtful than helpful, even when you're trying to create a safe space unintentionally, right? Well, but it almost sounds too, if you're on the other side, you're so afraid mm -hmm. of failing or doing like, and I think that that's why people anxiously give advice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, let's take, for instance, you're sitting with someone, even just providing them the option, would you like me to stay here or would you like space? you know, and they might say, just go in the other room. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. So I think even what you're trying to say is at least like simplify the options if they mm -hmm. can't even articulate it so that they can pick one. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to know whether you've made a right decision to help someone or a wrong decision until you've made a decision, right? So a lot of people live in this ambi the ambiguous, what do I do for this person? What do I do? What do I do? Sometimes it just takes trying something. You can drop off a meal to someone and they can be like, please don't ever do this again, right? Or you can drop it off and be like, thank you. That was really helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Or offering to pick up a kid from school or, you know, or, or doing something. But again, you're not going to know whether you made the right decision or wrong decision until you've made one. One. And ideally, that person would tell you, hey, it was really helpful when you did this, or it really wasn't helpful when you did this. But it's hard to tell. Mm. Well, that brings us to our last question. Um, what does Jesus have to say about the topic? So, Elena, this was a lot of fun. You're, you're a really good uh, interviewer. I Thanks. Hope you, I hope we get some more podcasts. So, um, you know, as I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking about um, how 
isolated Jesus felt the night before he was to die on the cross and just or actually it was two nights but here he is praying his friends are falling asleep you know there's physical repercussions to the stress that he's going through um he's about to get betrayed and mm -hmm. i don't think we talk about that enough in relation to mental health that when you pray to jesus there's someone on the other end that understands that feeling of isolation that feeling of pain mm -hmm. and you know i i just think from our conversation you know all throughout the bible are misquoted but ultimately helpful thoughts on mental health that Jesus is saying, no, this is like really real. The gospel writers felt it was so powerful that people knew how stressed Jesus was. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a testament to like God cares about our body, mind, and soul. So that's where I lean. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important to the future. Jesus thought so. Yeah. Such, it, such a pastor answer. Yeah. No, no, but it's it's so true. And I use that example all the time in my practice, right? Not only for people who are trying to support others through mental health, right? Jesus needed space from the disciples, right? His friends sat outside while he tried to figure out what was happening and he prayed and needed mm. time. They didn't desert him. They didn't leave. And he said, you wait there while I do this, while I take care of me. And, you know, we talk about too, we see in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? He cried. And I talk about that all the time in my practice so for the people who fall on the continuum of like, yeah, let's talk about what this means. Like how how does, you know, the Bible inform or, you know, mental health show up in the Bible. But yeah, I mean, he grieved the loss of people. He mm. grieved sin, right? He was mm. sad. And, and people feel like they can't be those things sometimes. Like you can't be a Christian and be sad. You can't be a Christian, anxious, depressed, confused, right? I mean, Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Mm. Right? And he had that moment of what is happening? How do I make it through this? Knowing full well what was to come, that it was going to be great. It was going to be the greatest sacrifice. It was going to be exactly what we needed. But in the midst of it, it was hard. Mm -hmm. And in the midst, the depths, the pits, the valleys of mental health, it's hard. God's still there, right? Even on your good days, bad days, God's still there. So it doesn't make it not hard. Mm -hmm. You can trust in the Lord and still be scared. Mm -hmm. You can trust in the Lord and still be confused, frustrated, hurt, pain. It's all there, right? Well, I guess that just means we're just going to have to have, have you back on the podcast. Right. So, I don't know if I'm going to make you more anxious, but I, I did feel anxious because I resent you discussion notes. I already sent you, Jude. So, no. hey, we just confession time. We're just being real. So, right, yeah, I love it. <laughs> hey, uh, so people could find you at agaperock.org. Is there yep. any other social media they can find you? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. They got my bio up there. I'm on there. there. Yeah. There so. you go. Done. Perfect. Hey, go to whygodwhypodcast.com. Subscribe. That's the best way to stay connected with us obviously share this uh elena thank you so much for being on with us thanks for having me